0: And welcome to episode 162 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now joining me on today's episode is the return of one of my favourite film directors, the absolute genius Neil Blomkamp. But not only that, he's come along and brought the leading star of the film Demonic, the incredible actress Carly Pope. Both of these are absolutely fantastic from the moment we start talking, It's one of my favourite interviews that I've ever done in five years and I can't wait to share it with you in just a few moments' time. But, like I do on the intro of all episodes of Mark and Me, I do want to touch base and talk about my last episode. I was joined by the amazing actress Jo Hartley. I could never have predicted the response that came from this episode. It's been one of my most downloaded episodes. I've had more emails and DMs and private messages from listeners than I've ever had on Mark and Me. It's been insane and also behind the scenes it's led to hell of a lot more people getting in contact and helping me secure loads more interviews in the near future. It's been massive. I've been talking to Joe quite a lot over the last week and we've been blown away by the response and the good news is Joe is going to return for another face-to-face longer episode in the very near future. But let's get back to today's episode. Only two guests have ever come on Mark and me three times, Dustin from Thrice and now Neil Blomkamp. And I really do hope that Carly Pope returns because this episode is fantastic and she is absolutely incredible from start to finish. So I think the best thing to do right now is to get straight to it. So here's me, Neil and Carly talking all things demonic. So Carly and Neil, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Thank Thank you. you. A lot of the listeners out there have heard me and Neil talking now a couple of times, but Carly, for you, what it was at the very start that made you want to get into acting? Was there a certain film? Was there something at school? What was it that made you want to become an actress?
1: To be perfectly honest, I think I think my older brother and I, it was just the two of us at the time. We have a, a younger brother now. But at the time when when I was, you know, quite small, my older brother and I would spend a lot of time watching and rewatching movies. And um, I think I think for me, it, it was sort of it was sort of coupled. We both we both had you know various run ins with health and, and whatnot. So we were home a lot and we were, you know, in and out of. Um, various uh, various uh, states of infirm. So we watched a lot of film to kind of you know pass the time, and I think it was it was so it was so enjoyable. It was such a it was such like a state of levity for both of us that I just really became quite enamored with like the medium in and of itself. Um, as for as for acting, for me, I, it wasn't really on my radar. To be honest, I, I i enjoyed I enjoyed film. I enjoyed TV as a medium to watch as a viewer, but I wasn't thinking about it um, in any capacity as a career. And I something something happened when I was in high school. We had a like a a, a specified drama program at my high school, and. You know in in the earlier grades like grade eight and grade nine you just sort of did improvisation and that was definitely not my forte and it was not in my um uh, it seems my like intro- you'd be
2: good at, at improv don't we i guess we don't really we didn't really improv much on this but it seems like you would
1: be is that because i talk a lot of shit neil <laughs> 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 Um, but it just it just I don't know what it was. It just like for me, I just felt very on the spot and it was it was very intimidating to, for me. But then in once you once I started getting into like older grades, we started to do a lot more scene work, and that was really quite um uh stimulating to me. Yeah. Like I really, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the the process of of breaking down a scene and figuring out how to make it work, especially with other. Um, with with your with your co-actors in a scene. Which, that, which
2: school was that in Vancouver?
1: It was Lord Bing Secondary right. School. So um, they had like a dedicated theater program. And then actually, the, so the theater program is for grades 11 and 12. And I auditioned for it after I started doing the scene work in grade 10. I auditioned for the theater company and I got in and that was sort of like, you know, two years of dedicated um, theater work and training. And I think I ended up taking another block of theater and did some like directing for younger grades. And I just was really, I just really enjoyed mm. that immersive experience. Um, so, so I sort of got bit by the bug there, but I still wasn't thinking about it in, in any way, shape or form other than as a hobby. And, um, my agent who's still my agent to this day in Vancouver came to one of our productions um and he asked my teachers after the show if I had if I would be interested in representation so they sort of like took me aside and asked me if I would be interested and I was like I don't know maybe um and I went in and met with him and you know had a little uh read of a scene and he's like well it's a bit you're a bit big but (laughs) but we can work on that what do you mean like
2: a bit like a bit broad
1: Like a bit broad, like a bit theatrical, like a little bit, like, you know, like just simmer down Carly, I think is what really the tag was for that meeting. Um, But he started representing me, I think, around my last year of high school. So around in grade 12. And, you know, it was very slow going. I had a few little jobs here and there. It was really uh, after I graduated, I'd started university at the University of British Columbia, and um, I ended up testing for a show in Los Angeles that sort of started this very um, fast, furious and like designated ball rolling into what is now my career. And I, I, I really didn't, again, I was sort of, you know, in university going- um, What were you studying? I was studying uh, English theater history and psychology. And I wasn't sure where I was. The reason why I was taking such, such few credits at the time was because I didn't know where I wanted to go. I just wanted to try a couple things out. And, but I had a feeling I would land in the kind of like humanities or like social justice kind of world of it all. And, um, and then I ended up uh, booking a series that was uh, shooting in Los Angeles. So I withdrew from school and followed that, breadcrumb, which was uh, all sorts of terrifying. And, um, and I really wasn't sure about any of it. But I had a lot of people around me kind of urging me to, to follow that lead. And so at 18, I moved to LA and, and uh, Bob's not my uncle, but he might be your uncle. (laughs)
0: Was your your family supportive? Were your parents and everyone around you saying go and do this? Or was it because when I wanted to be an actor, I wanted to be a musician, my parents were kind of like, you can do that, but you need to get a proper job first. And then you can hopefully do that if it's a dream come true for you, or were they completely behind you?
1: They were, I think, I think uh, my parents certainly, and, uh, my brothers and, and the, the, you know, the people around me that were mentors uh, and friends at the time, they were all really, really supportive of it. They were, they were one or two or three steps ahead of where I was. I was very reluctant. I was really shy and really scared and um, also very indignant. Like I was really sort of in that angsty late teen phase of going like, I want I want to do what I want to do. I don't know what that is yet, but like, let me figure it out. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, it was quite amazing because I I have heard many stories like so, you know, that, that um, parents, you know, kind of want you to follow a more traditional path in order to then figure out what you want to do. And my, and my parents sort of took um, a different approach and just, and just recognize that this was an opportunity that probably doesn't come around very often. It really did happen out of, out of nowhere. It was sort of, um, uh, incredible that way. And, uh, and so, you know, they were, they certainly were very supportive, but also very much urging me to not, um, to not, uh, squander an opportunity that was in front of me.
0: That's good. I mean, it it might be on those fears where they're like, mom, dad, I'm 18, I'm going off, I'm going to become a big actress. And they must be like, oh, my God, like, can you do business school as well? Or can you do something else just in case to fall back? But the fact you had those kind of humanities and the other stuff to go with it was great. But the fact it must have happened so quickly that I suppose they started to see some evidence that it wasn't just a dream, there was some reality to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, indeed, it did happen quickly. And I I think that... um, I think that I think that there was probably a silver lining that I had a job that I was already yeah. hired for that probably helped yeah. a lot. <laughs> that's,
2: that's, that's the unique, like that's actually the super unusual unique part of it. Yeah. Normally it's, yeah. I want to go to LA and be an actress. And then the parents are trying to make sure that you get something that's more stable initially. But in this situation, it's like they asked you to go down to LA and you weren't thinking about it. It's, it's like, yeah, there's a lot more of a reason to do it then
1: yeah it's um it was it was definitely a perpendicular approach to a career <laughs> that's for sure but um but it was i i do feel very grateful that my that my parents sort of didn't let up and did sort of um you know guide me i i, I was i was to be perfectly honest like tooth and nail wanting to um run away from the opportunity because i just didn't i didn't feel Feel ready, or I didn't feel like I had made that decision, like you're saying, Neil. Like that decision to be like, you yeah. know, uh, I want to follow. I want to follow my dreams, and it was it it was it was part of my, um, you know, extracurricular outlet. I really enjoyed it, but it wasn't like my dream to yeah. be an actor. Yeah, so it was it was certainly um it was certainly a, a strange. A strange uh, happenstance, but I'm really—I I don't regret any of it. It's been a wild ride, and now it's just trying to figure out like how to, you know, sustain the um, the ebbs and flows and and all the rest that comes with it.
0: And one thing that I was kind of very curious by, and I you know, I, I can do some research, but I prefer just to find out on the actual day mm-hmm. and speak to people firsthand how you yeah. both came into each other's lives. So, Neil, can you remember the first time you discovered Carly's work or saw something or maybe it was the first audition? I'm not sure if it was a show or something. How, how can you remember being introduced to Carly? I,
2: I think, I, I mean, it was on Elysium and I think, I don't remember whether I saw, I have like a terrible memory, I should say. Let me just start off by saying I have the worst memory in the world. <laughs> But um, I don't remember whether it was that I saw Carly's edition and then I showed my wife or whether Terry, my wife, said you should check out Carly because she was really into Popular, which is the show I think Carly's referring to. Um, is yes. that why you went down to L.A.?
1: Yes, that's, it, the, that? yeah. that's yeah. Okay.
2: I love the link there. It's nicely done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so that's that, that, you know, and then I and then I met her on on Elysium and yeah. then. Um, Years later, when my brother and I were setting up Oat Studios, we were trying to figure out, I mean, it's ironic that she lives in LA because we were trying to figure out like actors that were within the vicinity of greater Vancouver that could be, everything that we were trying to do was was to have this recurring kind of feeling to the to the pieces we were making and that we could call on people that would be around to you know continuously like cooking with bill could have a hundred episodes for example so uh so when i when when the casting agents in vancouver started giving us stuff i saw carly and then instantly was like okay that's awesome we can we can use her for a whole bunch of stuff and then I got to know her a lot more than I did on Elysium and uh and Raka and cooking with Bill led to Adam and um and and then actually, this entire movie, which is this very unusual way that it was made, where I, I knew the the uh, a couple of the core actors prior to writing. So I so I said to Carly, I want to shoot some sort of Paranormal Activity style movie like later this year. Are you theoretically around? I think I sent you an email saying that, right?
1: You did.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then so so the script. I don't. I'm not sure if anything existed. And then and then a few months went by, and then I sent her a first draft of the script. But it was. I knew that. I knew that she. Obviously, she had the talent, and she had the right sort of camaraderie mentality for how a lower budget film would be shot. And she had gone through the Oates Film School, which was basically the same way we made *Demonic*. We just it was just a feature film length version. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's yeah. I mean, that's basically. But but I, I would say on Oates is really where, you know, I I got a much clearer idea of the capacity for what she can do and the breadth of talent and everything else. You're sitting Thanks. here now like, oh thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and Carly, obviously were you
0: you when you first did um, Elysium, did you go back and see stuff like District Nine and then get an idea for Neil's work or were you already a fan? Were you on board? I know I'm putting you on the oh, spot. I mean, you, you might turn around and go, I've never heard of him until that point, but I'm sure you Yeah.
1: Did. Imagine that. No, I um I had gone to um, oh, I didn't go to the. I thought I. I thought I went to the premiere. I didn't go to the premiere of District Nine, but I saw District Nine like right away when it came out. And um, actually, with my now husband, that was one of the first movies we watched together. Which is in LA. In in LA, yeah. And um, and I was. I mean, I, I again. I know. I I know. I'm not alone when I say this. Like, I was so blown away by. By the film, by the vision, I felt I felt so deeply for the prawns. I, t- I was like, "How is this happening? This mm-hmm. is insane!" <laughs> but it's um, it was such it was it was such a um, a unique and to me really game changing film. It really so, kind of subverted a lot of uh, a, a lot of um, filmmaking, and and it was so. Uh, brilliant. And so so I already knew who Neil was, of course, from that film. And then when the Elysium audition came up, I was actually shooting a film in Vancouver at the time. And um, this audition came up and, and the material for the audition was like um, sort of a, a mashup of all of the um, CCB agents that were in uh, you know, in, in Jodie Foster's world on the ship. And so the, there were, it was probably like an eight page audition or something bananas that like was just talk, 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 talks. So it was all of the CCB agents material, like mashed up into one for the audition purposes. And I was, I was looking at it going, there's, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this because I'm working on, I was working every day on this film. I was like, there's, I don't know how I'm going seems to. Like, it seems
2: like a ridiculous costing requirement as well. I should go back and like <laughs> re- revisit how that happens. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> but,
1: but here's, here's what I will say is that Candace Elzinga who cast that film is somebody that I've known since I started in Vancouver and she was so beautiful and so lovely and so patient and I actually I'd gone out to get a suit, like a like a like a right. pants suit in Vancouver, because I again I was up there shooting and you know I, I I it was summertime. I had, you know, summer clothes with me. I didn't have anything that looked um bossy or official or like appropriate for um an Elysium set uh, world. So I went out to get a suit and I remember going to the audition and I was like sweating. It was so hot out that day. And I had these eight pages and I just kept running them and running them and running them over my brain. Um, and, uh, Candace was so patient with me and she just sort of said, let's just, let's just take our time. Let's just, let's just get through this and let's do it. So, um, I know this is, you know, a bastardization of your question, but basically uh, I knew when the audition came in that I I knew who Neil was. I knew I wanted to go in for it. I didn't know how I was going to make it happen because I really was struggling to keep the words for the film in my brain um, that I was shooting, currently shooting. So I did, but I knew that I, I couldn't pass up this opportunity. So um, yes, I, I did know who Neil was. Was I did very much want to be a part of the Elysium world. There was zero script to be read. Of course, it was just these sides that were um, all mashed up together. And then when I got the call that I was cast, I remember going to the production office and like, you know, signing an NDA and like sitting in the production office, reading the script for two hours.
2: (laughs) Was it at the bridge?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it was the bridge. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, and reading it and then being like, okay, well, that's what we're, that's what we're doing. And I don't think I really, I don't think I really met you Neil until like quite late in the, in the process, because it was just, again, there were so many people, there was there it was such a huge, it just felt like a huge set. Like, I feel like, um, you know, everyone was on walkies, like like receiving information from you know football yeah. fields down the way, like it was very, it was very big. But um,
2: I, oh, I, I mean, regard. I mean, you know this even from demonic. Like regardless yeah. of if if we had four people on demonic, I, I always know. have to have like a radio. Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it Doesn't matter. Like I need I need a radio. So and that's that's also like the first thing that you you know you go to the first ad and just like flip out if if like where is the radio because I feel like I'm not in communication with people then. So, right. uh, but you you are right. It was more. I think the thing was more the vibe of Elysium was like the little earpieces that like you mm. know everybody was wearing. So it had more of a surgical stripe feel to it.
1: For sure. Yeah. Very clinical. Yeah. Um. And then you know when we when we got into the oat stuff, it was like, it was it was just like melee. It was just like mm. fun fun insanity.
2: Yeah, which exactly how it should be.
0: Yeah, was that quite a contrast to flip from the big studio with everyone on walkie-talkies? Don't get me wrong; I'm sure Neil, at any opportunity on oats, you'd still have your little uh, walkie-talkie
2: again and stuff. But was I did. it?
0: Was it? Yeah. yeah. Have you got one at home? Are You like? Why mm. would you like? No, to- no. It's it's
2: it's it's the AD <laughs> department's job, right? Like, so they have yeah. they'll have these banks of radios that are charged at night, yeah. and you usually have you'll, it'll have like a sort of duct tape. A uh, tape across it with a number yeah, and then it'll get assigned to like, mine will be like number four or whatever the number is. So each morning the maybe the second AD will come up to me and give me one, or the first AD will give me one and it's the same radio and it, it's always in my hand. And then I feel like, I mean, I can instantly start asking questions. So it doesn't matter whether it's oats or, or it's Elysium, like you yeah. need to have that. And it's, there's very few things on set that I kind of, that really just, tweak my brain, like I'm pretty mellow, but like one of them is if I don't have a radio, it'll it'll set off like a chill like a a meltdown, like a chain reaction. Someone's like, sorry Neil, I
0: forgot to charge them last night. Like, oh my God. Yeah. That happens, it's not good.
1: Mark, I think you're onto something though. I think that maybe that would be a good gift for you and Terry Neil. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Uh, Like a a set of walking (laughs) coffees. Yeah. Oh, you know, I think I have some actually because she's out in the barn sometimes. Do you want a cup uh, of tea? Yeah. uh,
0: yeah milk sugar yeah in a minute yeah. so carly when you got involved in oats because this is some you know for me i'm not just saying it because neil's here's the, the finest work i've seen from a studio you know i absolutely loved it and you know each week seeing it on youtube and getting the opportunity to own it on blu-ray and everything was just magical and to be involved in racco and everything else was it mm-hmm. a completely different feeling did it feel like being as part of a family because of the the scale of it instead of it being this absolute sh- stupidly big huge studio where everyone in the world's involved and all these you know different people did it feel more homegrown and organic and like a different feel of being involved was it less intimidating or was it more because you were under the spotlight more
1: um well I mean first first and foremost like Neil really sets a tone of what he wants you know for for his sets which which really is like the type of environment that I want to work in as well which you know is just um creative and copacetic and, and, um, and, and zero nonsense. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a whole lot of nonsense, but it's not, it's it's not from, (laughs) you know, the, it's not from, um, bad apples on set. Like there's a very, there's a very tight ship and it's a very, uh, great environment to work in as a result. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I think that just the inception of oats of of wanting to um, create a, a landscape of less cooks in the kitchen, and as a result, you know, um, newer recipes to keep that analogy going. But like, there's, I I, I feel like I feel like that in and of itself is just so um inspiring to be around because you just you just can you just can play and try and experiment and and create and there's there is not as much pressure because you don't have you know executives breathing down your neck or or people to report to it's kind of like you can just make what you want to make and see you know see how to fine tune it better for next time or, 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 or reshoot it if you need to reshoot it, or, you know, you, there's a lot more freedom. There's a lot more, um, ability. There's a lot, a lot more uh, space to move around. So, so I think it's, um, again, that experience, like the oat stuff was, was really reinvigorating, for me on, a, on a lot of levels the the audition for that was bananas. <laughs> it was
2: like, I don't I remember. D- like, is okay. Wait, it was what, what were crazy. you, what did you do?
1: It was crazy. <laughs> so we were with, <laughs> I, I
2: seem to like, it, it looks like the pattern that is emerging is that, is that I require yeah. absolutely ridiculous auditions. <laughs> <Like, laughs> it's like a I strange knew- pattern. <laughs>
0: And you don't I remember a- anything ever. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> yeah. yeah, precisely. Um, <laughs> no, it was, um, it was, so Chris and Kara in Vancouver were doing these sessions with uh, like a handful of people. They were putting about five or six people in a room together at the same time. And we were all sort of loosely running these scenes and then switching the roles in the scenes. It's actually a good way to
2: figure out like real crazy improv though.
1: Yeah, totally. And it was, and it was really improv heavy, which I was like shaking in my boots about. I was like, forget it. I'm, I'm out. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. I was so scared. And (laughs) it was the most fun. Like we were there for hours. I think we were there for like four hours or something. (laughs) Like, like all, like it felt like it was an all day long affair. And we just kept, we just kept sort of um, switching everything up, switching up the scenes, switching up the roles, going in and out, repairing with everybody. And it was some of, it was some of the hardest and most fun work, like I'd done. And that was just the audition. So when oats came about proper, I was really excited because I was like, okay, if that's what, if that's half of what it could be, then this is just going to be a whole lot of fun. Mm. And, and it was exactly that. Like we started, I think Neil, I think we started with cooking with bill. Do you remember?
2: It feels like it was cooking with bill. Yeah.
1: Cooking with bill. And then. yeah, because,
2: No, no, that, I mean, that would be correct because, uh, yeah, it, that's exactly the order it would have gone in. I actually became vegan from Cooking with Bill for a month or two because of that tripe, like, bucket that they dumped out. Um, yeah. Do you remember that? Sabina, Sabina and Rich, like, put that bucket of actual pork cutoffs or whatever organs, whatever the hell it was, in that tin tray. And it took me a long time to recover from that.
1: Uh, hungry for breakfast? That right? go
2: away. No, it was it, – it was, um, I hope that we released that one. That one is out, I think. Um, but it's <laughs> man, that show is crazy. But when when Alec, I don't know if it's Carly or Alec, but one of them takes it takes this like meat tray out <laughs> at the end, which is meant to be in a machine that only makes vegetarian dinners. And there was nothing fake about it. It was completely like, you know, like the first rule of of any sort of practical effect is if you can do it for real, you should always do it for real. Yeah, like even 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 Ridley, I think with with Alien, with the egg in Alien, like a lot of that flesh in there is yeah. stuff that they went to the butcher to get, you know, instead of the SFX department. So the small SFX department that we had, which was basically production design, was Rich and Sabina. Rich Simpson is the production designer. Sabina went and got this like bucket from the butchery of you know organs that they didn't want. And, and and also pork blood probably is a bunch oh, of blood so that got dumped into the pan, which then got put into the machine. And it was uh, it was tough going being around that.
1: It was it was so um, aromatic. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And beyond that. Like I actually think it was a biohazard. Like it was definitely biohazard. Yeah. Like, it was like, <laughs> yeah.
2: it was like it was like it was like, like one of those things where it's like, oh, that was probably not legal. Again. Yeah. You know, like in terms of the making of a film, like I'm not sure that was legal, but yeah, it was it was a biohazard. <laughs>
1: but but like Mark, this is this is like case in point. You know, this is this is it, right? Like Neil has the same crew around like the same players are around it makes for a really really coherent environment to to work in and and uh and you know and and when that stuff's taken care of like when when all the kind of you know all the things that could go wrong with wild cards or whatever when they when they are intact it's like it it it's more than half the battle because yeah. then you can, you just have the the ability and the trust and the, um, you know, again, just just the confidence to. The stuff is
2: always going to go wrong. I mean, it's yeah, like filmmaking is just a process of sort of trying to deal with day to day things that don't work. It's just constant problems.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, it's it's really important because a lot of the listeners today will be now hearing the news they would have seen the trailer about demonic and it was really interesting to hear how neil sent you the script and a few pages and got the idea over email you probably weren't expecting that email to come through because pandemic and covid and everything else and the world had suddenly gone had gone absolutely insane so when you got this email and you could see that there was this secret project that no one was going to know about what was your first kind of thoughts were you at We kind of just in shock thinking oh my god it's been a few years we're now getting back on we're going to be doing something like the paranormal activity sort of style
1: yeah well I mean uh, yes all of all of what you just said for sure I mean it was actually just it was just past it was pre-pandemic it was just past New Year's but I was in Australia at the time like living in the wildfires that were going on in the in the 2019-2020 season and it was it was so intense. And so um, we were here and it was just after New Year's and I I woke up to an email, to that email from Neil and I was just like, yes, like, that's <laughs> amazing. Of course, like, of course. Um, and I think, I think actually, Neil, I think one of your questions to me in the, in the email was something along the lines of, how are you at improv?
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think when AGC, because just to be clear, like initially it was totally self-financed by my brother and I, yes, at at a small company, which is Stability. And then um, AGC, who was doing, they were financing another film that I was working on that that did stop when when the pandemic began, um, found out about it and they doubled our budget. And I think that they gave us slightly more than double, like they gave us slightly more than what my brother and I put in. And what that did, I think, was it took us out of the realm of found footage into the realm of more structured, you know, narrative, uh, traditional narrative in in the way that it's shot. And hilariously, it's actually the most restrained and controlled film that I've worked on. You know, it's it's which is kind of it's also hilarious that for a low budget horror film, it has 16 minutes of computer graphics, which is yeah. also mental. But um, so the improv question. Is, 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 it, is totally correct and yeah. how it began and in alignment with more of a, with very much of a paranormal um, activity approach to making it.
1: But, it's, but then, you know, then the pandemic happened. And then I think the next email I got from Neil was maybe like a week after the shutdown. And you said something along the lines of, now that the world's shut down, I want to make this film more than ever. Yeah, And I said, great. If you can figure out how, then like I'm in, I'm in. And then I think the first script, I think the first draft came through maybe like late April, I feel. And then we were shooting by, we were shooting by early July.
2: Yeah. And it was just
1: really, it was just really the, you know, figuring out how to travel people, how to operate a film set, with COVID protocols, how to...
2: Which was still super early on because the film yeah. had like eight or nine months of VFX. So a lot of movies that shot after us came out way, bef- way before this film came out. So um, so we we were shooting it so early that, that there were things we obviously knew we had to do. And I guess the union and people were telling production like how, how they thought we should do things. But even there, there was conflicting information on what should happen. And it was nowhere near as structured and locked down as as it is now. I mean, it's a totally different environment now. Totally. Yeah.
0: And one of the things that really stood out about this is obviously the way that you kept it under wraps and the fact that you went off and was, was it correct that you filmed in Canada the whole time and there was no leak, there was no exclusive shots that you get from people on their phones anymore, on Twitter and, you know, ever, you can see most of the new films now that are coming out from the big studios because someone is walking past getting that photo of the final I scene. think I think
2: for that to happen, though, it's got to be based on IP that people know, right? yeah. P- people like the level of curiosity is 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 based only on stuff that has like a really long track record of, of, of established IP. Yeah. Um, but, and also we, we weren't necessarily actively trying to keep anything secret. I mean, in the sense that it, it, it was just smaller. So there was less noise about it. It was, you know, we were just able to go off and do it without being bothered really.
1: And I think, I think to that point too, like so many of us knew one another that like it, it was just again there was just sort of this implicit understanding that we're making this film it's during the pandemic mm-hmm. you know it is it's it's small in terms of we had a smaller crew a smaller cast you know um and and as you say like there just wasn't that much noise like everybody was sort of everyone sort of had this tacit like mm-hmm. understanding that that you know we're we're not like none of us are influencers <laughs> I mean, not in the traditional sense of the word, if there is even a traditional sense of that word, no but um, yeah, but like, but none of us, you know, we all just wanted to make the film. We all just wanted to, to make it, make it the best we can make it, make it work and focus on that. And, and the other stuff would figure itself out, you know,
2: it's actually kind of interesting because it was, it was pretty fun to shoot, but I mean, for the subject matter being the tone of it being dark, it's, it's. It's kind of a weird one because the whole time, everything that we were doing was definitely aimed at just having this brooding tension that was that was simmering the whole time, and uh, and that's what happened when the cameras were rolling. But it didn't it didn't necessarily feel that way when they weren't rolling, which is cool, um, you know. And it wasn't because sometimes it can be it can just feel different. But like it was a pretty pretty fun shoot.
1: Oh, for and, sure. I and mean, maybe that's because
2: it was so small. Like I don't know. Maybe.
1: Yeah. Yeah and 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 that and that there again weren't too many people that had you know outside eyes on it or or, yeah, or some, needed, other yeah, some other agenda some other agenda
2: other than making the film
1: Yeah exactly like it was just it was very it was insular in that sense which was very cool and mm-hmm. and but also i mean really fun like it one of one of the craziest takeaways for me was that we could be like, you know, rolling on the floor laughing and then Mm -hmm. shooting the most like horrendous, (laughs) treacherous, emotional scene. And, Mm -hmm. and truly it was like that easy to swing back and forth because it was just, it was a group of people that, you know, had enough alignment that there, there was just no, it wasn't, it was, it was so, it was such, it was so unfettered in that sense. It was just so, it was so easy. And, and for me to like a big thing, I think like, you know, I've, I've, um, I've learned how to really like protect myself. So like when I have to open up and be vulnerable in scenes, it can be a tough ask for me because I, I really, I really want to feel like I am safe, or I really want to feel like I can trust. And in this situation, when you're working with friends, it's the best because it's like, that's taken care of. You don't have to worry about any of that. Now you can just like focus on how are you, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to do? What is the, what's the purpose? What's the motivation? How are you going to get there? And in this case, it was, it was so mind blowing because I've never experienced anything like it. Like typically, you know, I'm listening to sad music or like chain smoking or like doing something ridiculous to try to hurt myself in order to get into an emotional place. <laughs> and like in in this, it was like, it was like, let me try it. Like I was like tap dancing. Let me try this joke <laughs> on for size and see if that's funny. And then like cut to tears.
2: <laughs> that's surreal. Like, I
0: want. Yeah, the performance. 100%. The performance is like
2: emotional and moving, and 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 somber. And then it's like not like that when we're.
1: I mean, tr- truly, Mark, I was a clown on set, like a like an actual clown. I just was missing the makeup. Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me, Neil, you have got loads of behind the scenes footage that we'll get on the Blu Ray one day or something that we can see all this where you're sitting there.
2: I, I mean, you know, all of the behind the scene footage. Behind the scenes footage is like black and white eight millimeter with no sound yeah. <laughs> I think. Um, other than people's cell phones which mm, yeah there could be some good stuff yeah
0: and Neil obviously for you working on this it was a, a completely different genre for you with lots of different subgenres. and was that really exciting did it feel like every day was just trying new things especially with the t- we'll go into the technology shortly with the um, volumetric capture I think is that the correct term for it yeah. Yes, but before that, going into these subgenres and trying new things and working, it still feels like a found footage film at times. Even though it hasn't got the handy cam and the little annoying little red light mm-hmm. in the corner and same record, but did it feel completely new? And I suppose it, was it very fresh for you? Was it always a, a new challenge yeah. every day?
2: Yeah. No, it was definitely fresh for me. I mean, usually everything that I do has some kind of satirical or quirky weirdness about it. And this, this has zero of that. It's 100% dead straight in every single regard. So, you know, it's a subtle, it's a subtle shift, but in reality, it's actually very different um, to, to go into f- filmmaking approaches that differ, maybe not to the audience that much, but to the filmmaker, it's like you really are questioning each thing that you're doing. So I, the, the things that I really wanted to do was I wanted to have a sense of dread the whole time. The, 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 the shot choices and the lighting choices and the editorial pace and just like everything that I was trying to do was based on a feeling of unease and some sort of simmering tension. And everything was based on that. So uh, I was 100% aware of that all the time and it was definitely unlike stuff I had done before. Um, I guess the closest stuff, weirdly, would be oats. Oh, when you look at Firebase yeah. and you look at Raqqa, but um, but they're still fant- they're fantastical in a way that you're sort of. There's still an element of fun, even though that sounds weird with aliens invading Earth. There's a genre element to those pieces that demonic doesn't have. Like demonic is just straight up, you know, dead, 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 serious. So. Yeah, that was, that was. I mean, that was a total challenge and a total different different approach. Um, so very rock steady camera motion and um, everything was about the lighting being as naturalistic as possible, uh, you know, which Byron, Byron knows all about that. Byron, Byron is the DP and we used to, we, you know, DP is always want stuff to be light so that you can grade it down in post. Yeah. So that, so that the image is protected. And I think that what happens when you do that is that you lose something inherently that just isn't as cool as a single flashlight illuminating the scene. And it's like, I don't care what's in the black because it's meant to be dark. I'm not yeah. gonna raise the levels. I don't wanna see what's in there. So we would go back and forward with that a lot. Um,
1: like 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 <laughs> comic book level hero and villain battles about the light daily <laughs> <was> yeah daily. <laughs> <laughs> but it was he's, very good you're still was ta- very are you still
0: talking now are you having a bit of a time out where you're like look,
2: look we're not gonna talk <laughs> no no, no long we're, long still, <laughs> we're still we're still we're still buds so yeah no he's 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 all good and i mean you know it yeah it works out fine works out fine it was it was funny though like occasionally he would be sort of it would just be beyond his comfort zone like usually it would be on the edge of the comfort zone and he, yeah. he would like accept it but there would be the occasional one where he'd come up to me and he's like i really think that we may have made a mistake you know it's like <laughs> that kind of vibe which and then you know that you're onto something good like once yeah. you start getting into that zone you know that it's that you're in the zone that it should be in
0: and and one of the things that stood out for me, and I think this is the thing that will get people talking, is this technology of the volumetric capture. And Carly, what was it like working with all these cameras and this? I know it's not a completely brand new technology, but I've never seen anything like it on screen. The, the way it captures me and, you know, without the pun of the capture, but the way it drew me in and the way it looked is just mind blowing. And I was just sitting there. As a geek, thinking, how's Neil pulled this off? How how's he made this happen? How's it look like this? But to be involved in it and it must be very demanding and quite challenging to be working with this technology.
1: Yeah, that's incredibly insightful, Mark. Um, it's it was so uh it was so cool and unique, and for me, like way above my comprehension. I remember Neil sent me a YouTube video of what the technology was, and I watched this video going like cool i do not understand it but it looked <laughs> great and i can't wait to yeah. be that um geometric shape on screen and um and then when we got to the volcap stuff which was toward the end of our shoot there was um, actually a really
2: big break between there
1: was a yeah there was actually there or yeah. at least a couple weeks or something yeah. from the time that we stopped shooting to when we did the volcap and when so when we got into the the studio where we were doing this, you know, that was my first time really seeing it. Uh, on Adam that Neil and I had done together, we'd done sort of a version using some of the same technology like photogrammetry yeah. was used. and we'd used um motion capture and we used facial capture, which was the first time. That I'd experienced that, which was very strange because you like could not move your face. you know you're in this like you're sort of locked in a grid and yeah. all of your emotions have to be um have to have to be uh, um cast, but like immovable you can't move anything. So it was a very strange experience. I, I anyway. would never,
2: yeah, I would never do that that process again. like that yeah. Adam specifically was hyper hyper difficult, but Volcap yeah. for for this film was also not not easy
1: yeah and that was so we got into the the space and it was you know a five meter space with 200 how many 260
2: yeah they were like uh, yeah 260 I think
1: 260 cameras all around um like like a million hard drives (laughs) all around Mm -hmm. bright bright lights um you know you're in like a metal cage so to get back to your question mark like it was but there, but there's one
2: more layer though. There's one more layer oh. because Carly, Carly's describing like the the, I mean, it should actually be a hemisphere, but it was more like a it was more like a cage, it was like a prison yeah. cell. But there was because resolution um drops off, it it squares itself when it drops off. It's it's exponential and it's drop off. So like you know, one foot away from you is four times less resolution when it's two feet away, not not twice, right? And then eight and then sixteen. So, what to combat that we had these small other mobile hemispheres that was like an additional prison cage that yep. would get rolled in super close to the actors. So they were in a larger cage, and then there was wow. this other like mini cage that it was. I mean, I, I'm surprised right. that yeah, I'm surprised it worked at all. Actually, it was so it was so difficult to shoot on.
1: So this was so exact like like exactly what Neil just said. It, it was it was so. Um, like synthetic like the the environment was so or like or like just inorganic and technological and and, awkward. and and awkward and there was so much like you know there was so like so many wires buzzing and and there was all of that kind of noise so what was really interesting is that we shot like some of the more emotional content in Volcap So you're doing some of the, you know, what needs to be sort of like elemental or biological or Mm -hmm. um, like natural emoting in this hyper, um, hyper synthetic synthetic environment. So that was, I think the biggest trip for me was figuring out how to connect to that like emotional life because there was just so much technological noise yeah, like around. So that was, it was really, it was really interesting. But what was cool about that is that what's happening to Carly in the film is this very like out of body, out of world feeling. So it kind of was half the battle for me because like I wasn't supposed to be comfortable I wasn't supposed Mm. to be connected I Mm. wasn't supposed to understand what the space was that I was in so that was interesting
0: I wonder what's it like for you on the other side of the camera seeing all this happening and working with this it must be quite challenging because you're wanting this performance on screen but you've got so much to rely on around you all those cameras like you said all the hard drives all the k everything it must be were you sitting there thinking i really hope this is going to be worth it in the end
2: um (laughs) that's an interesting question no i i definitely knew it would be worth it i mean i knew i i had i had a pretty good idea of what we would end up with um because we'd done tests prior to that with um with tobias and with with uh with his company which was um volumetric capture systems yeah, and so I kind of knew I knew what to expect, but I did feel for Carly and Natalie because of how crazy the environment was. I mean, it really was. It's like it was difficult to ask. There's also there was also a whole mathematical component to it as well, where if a person moves fifty meters across a plane, across a field, and your and your capture area is is five meters, you you obviously have to stitch together ten separate walk cycles. So, and, and we had, we had a set in the movie. The audience will looking at the movie will see something that looks either organic or if it was a sanitarium is semi organic in the way that it's laid out, which means we had to do an aerial shot of the location and then draw circles or squares for the size of our capture area as little like, you know, dots of where the characters would walk and and the the sort of screen direction of which way they're going and stuff has to correspond exactly with a three-dimensional model which is the photogrammetry carly's talking about yeah that we gathered from real sets so it's 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 quite there's an actual like math component to it which is you know you ha- you're doing that and then and then there's also the performance element and it's super synthetic so the whole thing was kind of quite insane but the result is pretty cool though because I think in, in, you know, at five or 10 years from now, volcap cap is probably going to be pretty, pretty common because yeah. of, as soon as the resolution starts dialing into a place where you can see individual hairs and stuff, it's, it's like, I don't know why you would shoot with normal cameras. So, yeah. but you, but the question that you were asking though, where I was sitting back behind, you know, I, I didn't, by the way, I didn't really have a camera that I was looking at. I had a reference camera yeah. because there's 260 other cameras that just get used into making one 3d version of Carly. Yeah. So, Every part of it was was just a bit unusual and a bit weird.
0: Do you want to use it again? Are you straight away like on the next film? You like I want to use it, or are you just kind of thinking take a break from it for a while, and then like you said, wait for the resolution to get better, and then use it again. I don't.
2: I don't think that I can use it again in the sense that the only way that I could think how to use it, like the email that Carly's talking about when I when I first wanted to do something, one of one of the puzzle pieces. Because normally, what you do is like I, I i have a script right now for a project that i think i'm doing off the demonic theoretically right which is a science fiction script and it's like you just write the script and then the budget you look at what the budget is yeah and you're like oh this with you and and everything that is in the script you, we have to go out and we have to build or we have to it ha- everything has to conform to the narrative of the script and this film was done the other way around so mm-hmm. one of the puzzle pieces that i knew i wanted to use was volumetric capture and volumetric capture running in a video game engine, which in this case was unity. Yeah. So, so the reason I don't think I can use it again is because the technology is so nascent and so glitchy that the only way you can use it is to write it into a film in a way that the glitches and the prototype nature of it are embedded into the narrative. Yeah. So you see what I mean? So it's, it's no, a little it's, bit so weird. It's, it's
0: perfect for demonic, but then it would yeah. It was sort of else, it's was, like it's made designed, for that.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was designed with that in mind. But I mean, something like if you think of the Avatar movies, something like Avatar would be the perfect usage of VolCap when it's at a resolution that that rivals film cameras, because you could you could just have three dimensional your three dimensional actor in hair and makeup and and costume and like there it's basically like a three dimensional play and you take them and drop them into Pandora. You know, once Weta Digital's built all of the, the wildlife in, um, in the Avatar jungle, and now you can film your photoreal actor from any perspective, the way, the way that James Cameron would have done with all of the other stuff in Pandora. But he, yeah. the way that it's made is that he's locked into the only angle shot by two stereoscopic cameras. And that's the only, that's the only option he has. So it'll it'll when when it starts doing that, it means you can put actors anywhere, and then you know it'll really open up.
0: It'll be the year two thousand and sixty-five. Avatar six will be coming out of the cinema, and finally, we'll be quoting this podcast, saying, "Look, James Cameron is now doing this." Yeah. For the I mean, if, if anyone
2: pushes uh, pushes VolCap to the point where it's like rivaling eight K cameras, it'll be James Cameron. So yeah, um, I'd be first in line.
0: Incredible. And Carly, when this had all been processed, it had all been run down, all finished and everything, and the final render had been done, and you got to see this technology in the truest form where it was ready to be shown to the world, what was your feeling of seeing it, (laughs) obviously knowing you'd gone through all this? And I I mean this nicely, torture at times, because it must be just hearing about it now from neil i'm just imagining someone with a calculator in the background and all this paperwork and spreadsheets trying to work out the mathematics but it just sounds mind-blowing so to see it was it all you know it must have been so worth it in the end
1: yeah i mean it so you're asking if i watch my own work is that <laughs> right?
0: Do you know i did this question once with Corey, with Corey feldman he said i never watched my work back and i was like oh okay well forget that then but you, you must yeah. have watched demonic back and then seen it and thought well That's why it all happened.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's I mean, I had I had utmost faith that this was going to work out, you know, to it, to the T that Neil wanted it to work out. And and when I did start to see some of the images from the Volcap world in particular, it was I mean, it was so it's so exciting. It's just like it makes me feel gleeful to go like it's cool it's it's like it's like it's visually entrancing and yeah. it's interesting and it's a departure especially in this relatively lo fi as neil said like straight you know um film that has sort of like a very even tone to it it's like you get transported into this other world that is to me, just really exciting. It's exciting to see films trying to do something different. And and again, like I, I mean, that's to Neil's credit. Like it's it's, um, it's very generous, I think, to moviegoers, to an audience, to be able to to deliver something that's just different, you know, and 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 cause some sort of reaction. You know, ambivalence is not what we're going for. So. Mm.
2: Indifference. Yeah. Yeah. Did I, Carly? Did I tell you my uh, Corey Feldman thing? My story. I, that did I tell you? No, that?
1: but I would love to hear it.
2: Because because uh, Mark just brought up Corey Feldman, but this this is quite this is quite bizarre. So we when we because I don't live in Vancouver anymore, but when we lived in Vancouver, we we had a we had a house that's in this neighborhood called uh, I think it's it was under Carisdale, but it was basically Carisdale. And when we bought the house, a lot of people, like our neighbors and stuff, kept saying to us, like, oh, you bought the two Corys' house. And I was <laughs> like, what the hell does that mean? I kind of, I, I, at first, I just thought, like, I misheard them or something. And then, and then, like, years later, someone sent me Corey Haim and Corey Feldman fighting in my kitchen. And okay. the show, I bought the house that was the show for the two Corys. So then it was like, I watched a bunch of um, the reality show that was occurring in all of the rooms that we lived Jesus. in. Jesus, it was really, really weird. Actually, um, yeah.
1: They shot the two quarries reality show in Vancouver. That's also mind blowing. In my house. Like in your yeah. house, in your <laughs> <Yeah>. old house. <laughs> <laughs> That's Is crazy. It was so weird. Is it like it one of so
0: those um, the Osborne sort of style, so you could see every room in the house, and they just flying yeah, in exactly. Each. Oh my god.
2: Exactly. Yeah, it was very, it was a really surreal thing. And just because I mean, just because I, I didn't, uh, I didn't really know what people were talking about initially. I didn't know they were referring to a reality TV show. They just called it the Two Quarries House. Right. Yeah, it's quite strange. Just 20
1: feet from stardom, Neil.
0: I was just sitting here then listening and thinking, Carly, when you go to your next project and you start working on something, and I mean this with full respect, it's going to seem a little bit dull because you're not going to have 260 cameras around you you're not going to be having all this different technology and it must be a bit odd knowing that the next film you're the next tv show you're going to be working on you know it's going to be just straightforward back to normal process but that is, is not is that...
2: i mean like all of the all of the technological stuff should be in the background though i mean it's like, yeah it's, it's you know it really just is the it's only really the acting and the script that exists i guess it's like well, everything else is just is just
0: around the edges what is next what is next for you Carly what are you up to next you're allowed to talk at this point or is there stuff that you can't talk yeah
1: about? no not at all I was just I was just gonna say that um the I I just recently did a small role in um Joe Coy's feature film called Easter Sunday that Amblin is doing nice. and and Why that was interesting was one, it was a studio film and two, it was a comedy and you can, you can have all the hard drives and cameras and prison cages and bright lights (laughs) and all the rest. There is nothing harder than keeping up with comedic giants. or or trying to I should say not even keeping up just trying to just keep pace with these I mean like titans of comedy and and it was a very very cool thing to be a part of uh that movie and a lot of fun and I think to that point you know I appreciate that um you have faith that there will be a next time for me, Mark. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I hope for the same. Yeah, I'm but, also,
2: I'm also curious, like what, what stuff will, you know, what will be the next, it should be, it should be like a, a, a an oats piece, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, this is, this is the thing is, and this was, this is what I was going to say. Ultimately, I actually really like like flipping the switch Yeah. and like kind of being a pendulum in that sense, because There's there's nothing more like riveting and like utterly horrifying than than going like, I don't know what's going to happen. And the and in this case, I'd never done a horror film before. So it was all sorts of that. Like, I had no idea how how it was going to be, what how you know, what what mental state I needed to be in. Ultimately, I just needed to put on my clown hat as aforementioned but it was um but it's you never you just never know and then going from you know demonic to uh um effectively easter sunday was like such a change of pace too you know and and that kind of like workout is really interesting and it just it just you know um becomes blatantly clear that I'm that I need to keep up my fitness because it was like it it, it is such a change. And but I like that, you know, yeah. I like and I think that I think it's also um, kind of I think it's also important to just like flip the switch so that people don't get too comfortable with expecting one thing from you. You know, and I, I don't know, Neil, if you can relate to that as well, but it's like that to me is is kind of um, imperative to to like having fun and stretching and um and, and yeah, making i, mean, I totally content. agree
2: like shooting something like god or cooking with bill is like you know a, a breath of fresh air that yeah i love i love that kind of just just stepping outside of whatever people think is normal for from you as an artist
1: we're still i mean look we're still waiting for that romantic comedy from you neil <laughs>
2: Romantic comedy with an edge, like with just a slight, slight twist to it. (laughs) Yeah, we we uh, there's a lot of there's. I mean, definitely, it's something to do with oats. I think we should do next because there's a bunch of there's a bunch of and it would have it would definitely have some comedic vibe to it
1: for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're teasing everyone now, and everyone's listening and be quoting this, and I'm like, Neil's not giving us much. He's just saying oats, but so we are going to get some more oats in in the near future.
2: I think so. Think.
0: See, just fair. think, won't say yes.
2: <laughs> it's too risky to say yes.
0: No, that's fair. And Neil, people will say, is District 10 happening? I'm going to put you on the spot. Is it official yet? Are you allowed to say any more? No, it- it's, not, it's not official. No. You're sitting no. there writing still.
2: I, I also, I mean, you know, Alien and, and District 10 and like there's there's these projects that are always the projects that people talk to me about. And and I feel like unless I'm actually working on them or on whatever movie it is, yeah I just want to talk about projects that aren't happening less. Of so, course. yeah.
0: But you did say earlier today that you're writing some sort of sci-fi thing. And I was thinking, I wonder yeah, what that that's, is. That-
2: I mean, we are writing District 10, but it's like, it's, you know, it's a slow process, but that's not the project I was referring to.
0: Are you allowed to talk about the project that you are working on? Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) Will you come back on and make a fourth podcast when you are? Yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And Carly, one thing that we do have is a lot of listeners that are wanting to get into acting and getting to the film industry. And this is a question I put out to everyone. So I've had Anthony Hopkins, Mads Mickelson, Kevin Smith, all these sort of actors. And I asked them the question because I know a lot of people at film school or at university love finding out from people. What advice do you give to people that are trying to be like yourself, get out there make a name for yourself you've done so well it happened very quickly for you but what advice do you give to those people that probably are really struggling or trying to bounce back from auditions and get seen in a world that is so hard to be seen in
1: sure um this is well just on the heels of what neil just said and did with his very curt no I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I'm going to say something that's probably the shittest advice ever. But what I think that we're so conditioned to hearing no as actors, like on just from the acting side, we're so conditioned to hearing no, you get a lot more no's than you get yeses. There's a lot of rejection. Um, Many more auditions happen than roles booked. And we're so conditioned to hearing no so that when we hear yes, we jump And sort of almost mindlessly or blindly jump toward that. Yes. And I think um, this is not necessarily like straight away, of course, but like as you as you get into it, I I think there's a I think there is a lot of um, self-respect and confidence and awareness in Mm -hmm. utilizing the nose strategically and having the ability to stand up for yourself and say like, that's not what I want to put out there or that's not what I want to do. Um, But this is, of course, that's not, that's not good advice for someone just starting out. I think like to me, I feel like the most critical thing is being authentically yourself there. It's so, it is so, Um, typical and usual to start to bend to other people's desires or molds or um, um, whims. And if you start losing your own authenticity or your own personality, I I think that's sort of tantamount to, to um, having a, having a short career, you know, because I, I really believe that more than anything, if, if, you know, by trying to please everyone, you please no one, really. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's, to me, it's really important to just to be yourself, be who you are. You know, there's a lot of chat these days about like branding, at which uh, to me, I don't align with that. I'm like, no. well, what does that mean? Like I don't get I don't get that. It doesn't and again, you know I, I make a lot of mistakes. I am not a, I am not a, I, am, I am not the um, I am not the, the the model of how to be an actor by any stretch by any means. but but I do know that if I start to be a brand, I'm going to stop being myself. Yeah. And that to me is inherently like conflicting. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answered. Agreed. No, it's, it's, yeah. it's amazing.
0: It's one of the most heartfelt answers I think I've had in five years of podcasting. I could tell every word oh. you meant and it's true. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, your line about not pleasing everyone and everything. It's so easy to fall into that trap where you just adapt and become, Oh, I'll do this to be this person. And I'll make sure I fit in with that person. And ultimately the biggest kind of regret will be that you will end up not even remembering who the real you is.
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah.
0: And what about you, Neil? I mean, that's quite a big one to follow up on, but what would you say for people that want to be behind the camera and direct and want to get their stuff seen? Because obviously with Instagram and Twitter and YouTube, it's great to get your work out there, but what advice do you give to those young filmmakers that mm-hmm. want to be the next Neil Blonkamp and, you know, get hmm.
2: this. They should be careful. Uh, just make sure that they don't direct Chappie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's similar to Carly's answer in the sense that I think the more, the more that you are clear about what you want to do and what, what you are aiming towards, I have a very clear vision of what you're aiming towards the higher, the chance of you reaching that goal, because it's going to be more difficult for other people to knock you off course.
1: Yeah.
2: And it's I, I, I see a lot. You see people that have that, that have an idea of what they want to do. And then it's kind of a little bit like what Carly was saying. You get offered something right. You get offered this film or you get offered that film. Or you get you get offered an opportunity that maybe isn't in film. Something begins to chew away at the vision that you have for yourself. And I think that the, the stronger that you can hold that course and just stay on the rails, the higher the possibility of you actually getting there. So it sounds obvious, but it's it's not obvious when you're when you're going through the process because there's there's a hundred different avenues to get there. And it's not, you know, it's not clear what the right road is. But I think if you just kind of focus on the original goal and clear all of the clutter and the noise out from your inside your head from other people speaking to you, it'll become clearer to see what it is and just stick to it. So it's like don't do things for money, don't do things for, you know, for for uh like it has to, it should be difficult. It's probably difficult to get to where you want to go and mm-hmm. stick with it.
0: It's kind of easier said than done at times, isn't it? because you need that kind of space and that mindset to be able to take that step back and analyze what's going on and the questions that are being asked of you and the decisions that are going to be made. sometimes it's just so if, easy to be put. I don't on. know if
2: it's a step if it's a step <laughs> back thing like I, I don't know if it's a perspective thing. it's more like it's more like, the firmer you are about what you want to do, the more, the, the more it's going to be difficult for someone to offer you something that could be more lucrative or could get you a, a different form of gratification that isn't on the road to where you're going. And then the next time you say yes to that and the next time you say yes to it, like 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, like you're nowhere in alignment with where you, what your true instinct is and what your true goal is. So sometimes it's just easier to say yes to stuff. And, and you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not really being that clear. I'm being more philosophical, but it, it does apply, I think. Definitely. And, and, and the other thing also, and this is also, it's tied to the same answer. The other thing is stop talking. Like if you want to be a filmmaker, stop talking about it and get a camera and shoot stuff and shoot stuff. Like often, it doesn't matter what the budget level is. When I, when I was working in visual effects or animation, I used all of my own money to shoot stuff. I'd like work in the morning and then I'd shoot at night with like, I, I could never pay rent, you know? So you have to continuously do what it is you're trying to do. You can't just like hang out in coffee shops and say that you want to do it. It doesn't make sense.
0: It's really weird because I'm on the verge of, quitting my job which is the office job nine to five to do the podcast full-time because it's just what I get the most from I enjoy it Mm. but in this world it's difficult to get the balance because no one wants to pay for podcasts but whenever I ask this question a lot of the answers are the same like you just need to do it you just need to take that jump you need to believe in it and then every week I'm sitting here editing that same answer or listening back of that feedback Mm. and I never act on it and I'm so close to doing it I'm at that point now where I'm like I want to do it because then. I don't think I'll ever stop. I think even if I'm just eating pot noodle and just about making rent, it won't matter because I'm getting to talk and do stuff like this on a daily basis. Yeah.
2: What's your what's your job that you do?
0: Which is uh very different to what I'm doing right now.
2: Yeah. Interesting. Right. That is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I certainly don't know enough about the economics of like how podcasting works, but um but I think I mean anyone who works in the in, in the realm of creativity faces this problem, right? Yeah it's like it's just not. It it's at war with economics. Like yeah. art, any form of art is at war with economics, and it's and and that's part of the trap as well. You know, the trap is that you need to earn money. I I mean, what I did, and it may not be applicable to you, but it was like I just kept scaling my hours back. Um, yeah. So eventually, I got it down to two days a week, and then finally, I was on a beach in South Africa, and I phoned my like supervisor, and I was like. I'm going to go ahead and just drop it to one day a week. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, that's kind of not going to work for yeah, us. Don't bother
0: Neil. Yeah. yeah, no, that's exactly
2: what happened. <laughs> and I just stayed on the beach in South Africa and thought thought a bit. And then I moved into directing, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm, I'm going to do pretty it. Funny. I'm cutting back and I'm doing exactly that. I'm getting to the point where I'm like, okay, I'll just do a couple of days and then I'll just, you know, you can live on what you earn. And if I'm doing something I enjoy and I'm passionate about, then, I won't be loathing getting up and having to do something that just doesn't interest me and could be nine hours of doing other stuff so it's uh, inspiring hearing you both kind of gone on that journey and you've, you've done it and i hope one day i can join you in that club Now, is there
2: any way that your boss could hear this
0: <laughs> i was thinking how am i going to edit around this to make it sound like a natural answer and say like so mark what do you do i work in you should just beep okay. it out, man. Just
2: just beep it out so it has yes. like an organic feel to it. Yeah, that's what I'll yeah, do. Yeah, that, that's actually kind of cool. It'll be sort of mysterious. I will. I will do yeah. that. So keep it going,
0: Carly. This is the final question. I understand what time we're all in, and it's late for you, Neil, and it's really early here. And Carly, I think it's around the middle of the day for you. uh
1: Yeah, twenty past five. P.m. What
0: we do on the podcast to make it very different is every single guest, and we're on episode one hundred and fifty-one each guest gets to choose the outro piece of music. So on Neil's episode, he got to choose Sepultura uh, as his outro okay. music, which was awesome to listen back and editing. Cause I love that track anyway, Roots, which is just one of the heaviest tracks out there. Max Calero is a genius. So to put you on the spot, uh, what we do is we ask every guest to choose the music. It can be a piece of music from a film, a score, a song you love, a song that just means a lot to you personally, but it, it can only be one song and it can be no time to think about it. I want the one that comes to your heart and your head when I ask the question.
1: Um, it's a bit thematic with the film, uh, with the, uh, the Vatican angle, but I'm going to go with Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode.
0: I love mm, that nice. track. <laughs>
2: Depeche Mode's awesome.
0: Guys, I want did. to say a huge thank you for coming on the podcast. Neil, I know you've made this happen and when I was dealing with managers and agents and everyone, it was so good of you to make the last interview happen. When we had 20 minutes, I was so thrilled, but at the same time, I was like, we're not even going to scratch the surface of Demonic. You know, It's going to be the, hi, I'm mm-hmm. Mark, how are you? And then you've got someone in the corner saying, 10 minutes left. So I'm really, really grateful for you making this happen today.
2: Yeah, no sweat, man. Yeah, and really thanks thanks to you. hell of a lot.
0: And Charlie carly coming on and getting to know you and already i can tell that we're going to do future episodes and get you back on and it's an absolute pleasure to have you on i can't wait for people to hear your advice and see the film and then what you went through for that film and i'm not just saying this because you're here it's one of the performances of the year i can't wait people at fright fest will be reviewing it it's going to be all over twitter and facebook in a couple of weeks and people aren't going to stop talking about your performance it's unbelievable
1: what a beautifully kind thing to say. Thank you, Mark. And and thanks for having me here. And I'd love to come back if it means that you're still podcasting because you're damn good at it.
0: I'll and be he, I'll be there eating it. pot noodle. You'll see me homeless on the side of the street, but I'll be like, I did
1: it, guys. You know what? At least you won't wonder.
0: Exactly. At least
1: you, you've already I'll seen the i be freezing cold
0: and be really ill, but hey, I won't be wondering.
1: That's it. Awesome. Amazing. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank and yeah, thank you. Thank you guys for making this work. I know it's, it's so bananas. We have like such a weird triangulation of the world right now, but it's, yeah. uh, I'm happy we could make I was, it happen. I was
0: worried that when I hit connect that one of you would be an hour out and I hadn't done something right or I'd done yeah. something wrong. And then Neil- no, I, would and have, I
2: would have done. actually got the day wrong. Yeah. Just, it yeah. was like, no, dude, it's today. So I woke up at
0: <laughs> one o'clock in the morning just for some random reason, checked my phone. And it was like, Neil's like, so is this tomorrow? I'm like, no, I'm getting up <laughs> in five hours time. I've got my alarms there. In my now, head, I'm still worrying about this interview. And I'm like, it's one o'clock in the morning. I can't sleep. And Neil's like, is it tomorrow? I'm like, well, it is for me, but it's not yeah. for you.
2: <laughs> yeah. It like raises, it raises deep philosophical concepts. Like even with relativity, it's like your hand is in a different time zone to your eyes. You know, yeah, like problematic, right? So you guys are no. Now we're all in the same day, I think. Okay,
0: brilliant. Thank you
2: guys.
1: So yeah. well, nice. To chat.
0: Bye guys. So there it is. There's my interview with me, Neil Blomkamp and Carly Pope. It was such a pleasure to have Neil come back on the show. As the last special we did only a couple of weeks ago was very short. We had about 20 minutes. So to come back on and basically give me an hour and 20 minutes is a dream come true and I'm really looking forward to you guys at home checking it out and now finding more about the process of the making behind Demonic. Carly, you're an incredible guest and I loved you from the moment we started talking and I really hope we can get you back on the show in the near future and again talk for longer. If you haven't seen the film Demonic right now, check it out. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray over the next few weeks but also you can go and stream it on all the channels that you know of And honestly, I'm not going to shy away and ignore that it's getting some very mixed reviews. But I'm on the plus side. I think it's great. I really enjoyed it and it was everything that I'd expect from Neil Blomkamp during lockdown as a found footage style film. It's brilliant. If you're new to Mark and me and this is the first time you've listened, thanks for listening. There's another 160 plus episodes waiting for you right now on Amazon Music, Apple, Podomatic, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. I work really hard to get it on all the directories that I can and I really hope you can find it easily and listen to some old episodes with various people from all different walks of life. If you want to support the podcast, all I ask is that you share the episode. You can do this really simply on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Most people I know have these accounts and all you have to do is hit the share button or post it on your stories on Instagram or on Facebook. Share the link costs nothing to do and makes a huge difference and brings a whole new audience to the podcast it's something i'm extremely grateful for and every time i release an episode i do see more and more people sharing it so that's why i say this on the outro to every episode if you've really enjoyed today's episode you can support me on patreon on there you can sign up for as little as one pound a month you're getting a minimum of six episodes every single month Not only that, thanks to the amazing guys that support the podcast from Vice Press who are easily the best poster company out there and also Last Exit to Nowhere, my favourite t-shirt company. They give me a bundle of prizes every single month and they're exclusive to my Patreons. The only way you get this is to subscribe and you can be in a chance of winning some limited edition prints, posters that are no longer available, artist proofs, not only that, some incredible t-shirts from Last Exit, and this is my way of saying thank you for supporting me. It's not going to slow down anytime soon. You had six episodes in September, and I'm going to try and beat that in October. There's some really intimate specials coming up, a whole range of guests, and it's only going to be a few days until you get a brand new episode. So until then, look after yourself, take care, and I'll speak to you all very soon. Reach out,